This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Jason Peterson, CFO of EPAN Systems, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 648. Over the years of being involved in life sciences, I have tried to learn as much as I can about science and understanding the science. And I looked at the technology that the company is developing, the breadth of potential applications. Uh, it's a nerve regeneration technology, super interesting technology, not a lot in there that um, uh, competitive um, companies that are working in this space. When you go fishing for investors, you wanna make sure you have really good bait and really good bait obviously is having a really good, strong technology. It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Bill Adams, CFO of NerveGen Pharma, an early stage pharma company developing technologies to address nerve damage. So think of spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries. NerveGen Pharma is one of a string of biotech companies where Bill has served over the years inside the CFO office. Besides the science, we know you'll enjoy learning about the biotech pharma ecosystem that's taken root up in Vancouver. Bill's career grew up alongside it, or let's say within it. Our talk with CFO Bill Adams begins after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-size organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Bill Adams, CFO of NerveGen Pharma. Bill, welcome. Thank you. So, Bill, we're going to ask you to take us back and identify some of those experiences you feel prepared you uh, for a CFO role, and you've had several. But when you look back at those skill sets and where exactly the experience was gained, what, what comes to mind? Well, you know, it was a, an interesting journey, that not really planned. I, I started at, I was at KPMG in the Vancouver office, uh, working, serving a lot of different clients, but also very involved in the management of the firm in terms of recruiting new students and, and being involved in, in, you know, building sort of the, the student team at, at the office. And um, enjoyed it a lot, enjoyed the interaction with, with, uh, with clients, but felt that I wasn't moving up quickly enough. You know, back then that was in the um, late eighties, early nineties, KPMG had sort of, you had to put your time in to, to make your move. And so I was restless and I felt that I could broaden my horizons by going out into industry and getting about a year's worth of experience. And back then you could actually join one of your clients. Uh, the company that I joined, um, that, that was a pivotal change because the company I joined, I joined as controller 
had a CFO mentor there. It was great. It was a technology company, fast growing, very exciting. Uh, but about a year in, uh, the CFO left, the CEO left, and the VP of sales all left. And, and all of a sudden, there I was, you know, under 30 years old, thrust into the CFO role of a public company, and really not knowing, uh, you know, where I was going or what I was doing, and with the complete leadership change in the company. So you mentioned it was fast growing, it was a technology company, but can you tell us a little more about it? What type of company was this? It was a uh, hardware company that was transitioning to a software and systems company. So... Now I was the CFO of a public, publicly listed company in Canada on the Toronto Stock Exchange with really no experience at all. I was under 30 and just you know, running into those brick walls that you didn't even know were there. And you know, you pick yourself up and you brush yourself up and say, okay, that, that's great. I'll learn from this one. Get going again, full speed and whammo, you hit another one. And, and, and it was a real uh, initiation by fire. And, and I think, um, you know, Looking back, you know, I think if you have a chance to to do something like that, I think it's great because it wasn't just on the finance side; it was also being a first time member of a senior management team and and having to learn to work together with other people, you know, engineers, um, people in sales and marketing, which are always an interesting group, uh, you know, working on compensation plans with sales guys, which is always a fun negotiation, uh, but also very involved in dealing with customers and our customers were big companies. We were dealing with the Boeings and the um, um, general dynamics and large defense contractors in, in the States and uh, airline manufacturers in Canada and negotiating with people that are in, involved in those industries. And we're a, we were a small company based in Vancouver negotiating with some of these um, very large people. And it was a really good experience to get in and, and have that type of uh, exposure to, uh, to, uh, people in all aspects of, of industry right away. Now, do you recall, was there a specific meeting where it was like, you know, they broke the news to you that the, the management team was exiting and you're, you know, we're going to count on you, Bill. We're hoping you can step up here. We're going to need you. I, I mean, was there that type of conversation with a board member or the uh, a, an investor that was part of the company or no? Well, there was in the sense that there was a, a very a one major investor in the company that had a, a view to refocus the company. And it was interesting, though, because uh, his view and he actually came in as the replacement CEO. His view was more that the company needed to remain as a hardware company, whereas the rest of the company was already full steam ahead, uh, um, focusing on software and systems development. And really, the hardware was becoming a very secondary part. So so, you know, he knew me from my public accounting days and said, OK, you can stay in and do it. So it wasn't really a um, great uh, selection process. More like, you know, I, I need you to help me, um, you know, bring this company around. The, the challenge I had was I didn't agree with them. So I had to, <laughs> I had to stand up to, uh, you know, some of the suggestions and, and make my case in terms of what it was. And it was, it was a very interesting time. And I can tell you, it was a stressful time, but it was also, you know, again, you know, looking back, I survived and learned a lot through that process to, um, to, to really, you know, analyze the business, not just from a number side, but, you know, from an organizational side and, and what the customers are saying and being able to actually talk to the customers was, was extremely enlightening in terms of how to steer the company in the direction that it needed to go in. And it went on to great success. So, so you are a, okay, I, I interrupted you, but you are a CFO in your late 20s. Carry forward. Where, where do we head next? <laughs> well, then, you know, after that, um, I had an opportunity that, that that came along, and you know, this is kind of some of the other things I had. It was, it was um, joining a um, life sciences company, and and back then, uh, 
life sciences was just a fairly new industry in Vancouver area. And, and it was an opportunity to get in the ground floor of a company that had just moved up from the States to Canada to establish itself. Um, so I was employed, I think number, number 15, I was the founding CFO. There was a, you know one other person in the accounting department there and um, joined that company and had the opportunity to sort of use these skills I had in, in learning how to build teams and grow. And, and we built the company up uh, over a 10 year period. We had 165 people, I think at the end, um, had uh, one drug through, uh, well, it's now approved and saving lives, which is another whole interesting story in terms of how enriching a job can be if you're actually doing something more for the world than just you know making money, um, which obviously making money is important, but, uh, but coming up with a drug that can actually cure people is, is uh, extremely motivating to make you go into work every day. But, but I joined that company in over 10 years. We ultimately sold it to a large pharma company, as most companies do. So got a you know, really good taste of uh, mergers and acquisitions. Then since then, I've been with about four or five different companies. Same sort of story. So joining when the company was small, building it up to something significant, and then um, ultimately selling the company to a much larger organization. Um, you know, to successfully, uh, you know, take the technology on to the next level. Is there a, and you have, I mean, you've been a CFO of uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know if it's up to a half dozen of, of different uh, biotech related firms. Do I have that right? Or how would you? You do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. is there an ecosystem or how does, uh, you know, Bill Adams become this known, uh, you know, CFO uh, in that community? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you engage in that community? It seems to me you must, by now, be quite, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you have a science degree yet, but maybe you should, having learned so much about the technologies uh, that are coming forward in that space and engaging with these types of founders and CEOs and people who are very knowledgeable, the scientists themselves, most likely. Um, what would you tell us about that community that you're part of? Yeah, I would say that there's 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 two aspects of it. So one is the local um, sort of life sciences um, community, which is you know founders and and science people, finance people, all together. You know that you know we generally mean life sciences BC is the umbrella firm. I started a, a CFO roundtable there where we would bring in speakers to talk about topics that, you know interesting to CFOs and probably not really interesting to anybody else, but uh, but but certainly you know to build that network, but. So, so that was one important network, uh, you know, in terms of getting to know the different companies and the different, um, you know, uh, founders and scientific entrepreneurs that are in the industry. The second aspect is being very involved in the financial community. And so attending the big conferences and getting out, talking to a lot of the different investment banks, the analysts, uh, the investors, and really having them know you and trust you and understand, you know, you, you know when you do a, a scientific presentation for your company, um, you know, typically it's the, the, C, the CEO and maybe the chief scientific officer, and they'll talk about things with the investors that you probably don't really know anything about. And then you get your sort of your two minutes in the in the conversation at the end as the finance guy. And, and basically what you need to do is let them know that everything's going to be OK. I'm watching the money. I got my hand firmly on the wheel. We're going to make sure that these guys aren't running off and, and doing a bunch of crazy things with with your money. Life sciences in particular you know, your key metrics are more about cash burn and your cash runway and, and, and how you manage your, um, your existing resources more than it is, you know, at the stage that we're at revenue growth and things like that. That's really not something that we think too much about uh, on the revenue side, but we certainly do think a lot about what we're spending and how fast we're spending it and where it's being spent. 
Uh, you 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 mentioned something I thought was it was quite interesting actually. Did you say at one point in time you sort of a created or established sort of a biotech CFO network? Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, I was part of setting up the uh, CFO roundtables with uh, Life Sciences BC, and and what we did was you know we basically had a group of CFOs from all the different uh, local companies, and then we would bring in speakers. You know maybe it would be on one week would be or one month would be DNO insurance. The next one might be on um, cybersecurity, or we might bring in something on, you know, doing you know non-cash um, or non-dilutive equity financing or licensing of soft of, of technology, various different topics. So you bring in experts to talk about it, and then you just have a chance to sort of talk as a group. And what I found was extremely useful with that was, um, you know, one, it's it's relevant information for what you're doing, and then secondly, uh, you get a chance to network. And, and it was broadened. Uh, and I was uh, on the um, board of the um, Association of Bioscience Financial Officers, which is a um, uh, international group, mostly Canada and U.S. And we get together once a year in a conference. Um, and it's so it's the CFOs from life sciences right across uh, North America. And it's typically East Coast, West Coast each year. And, and that, in those conferences, uh, it's set up by a group of CFOs get together that we set the agenda. And same sort of thing. You bring in speakers that'll talk about topics that are relevant to what you're doing and, and relevant to what your, um, what your job is. And so not only are you getting, you know, good sort of professional development on that side, but you're also having a chance to network with CFOs that are in a similar position in a lot of different, different companies. Cause you know, that, you know, you're, you're not the only one who's met a lot of the challenges that, that's coming up. There's, you know, there's always commonality in a lot of the things that you hit and you can uh, get very good advice from people who have been there and done that before. So Bill, we, we might touch on your career again, uh, with you during our mentoring round. Uh, but right now, let's find out about NerveGen Pharma and what was the opportunity, given all your involvement with other pharma companies, what was it about NerveGen? What was the opportunity here that you saw? Well, it's it's uh, it's two things. So number one, uh, it's got to be um, a good and strong and interesting technology. And, and and you're right, you know, over the years of being involved in life sciences, I have tried to learn as much as I can about science and understanding the science. And I looked at the technology that the company is developing, the breadth of potential applications. Uh, it's a nerve regeneration technology. We, um, it's a, a molecule that's, that helps to, to regenerate nerves. So really important in diseases or injuries such as spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, but also it has, you know, potential application in, in, um, um, peripheral nerve injury and traumatic brain injury, sort of any place where there's a, a damage to the nerve. So super interesting technology, not a lot in there that um, uh, competitive um, companies that are working in this space, uh, this was developed out of Case Western Reserve. And so, you know, key for in finance is you want to, when you go fishing for investors, you want to make sure you have really good bait and really good bait obviously is having a really good, strong technology. The second aspect though was you you know, certainly in my career, I want to work with people that I enjoy working with and that I know I can, um, you know, trust and, and and build a good relationship with. And a number of the people involved in the company, both at the board level and in the senior management level, are people that I worked with before. And I think, you know, you want to build a strong, cohesive team, especially, you know, NerveGen at this point is still a small company. So again, you know, we have about nine people. So it's, it's, it's the same sort of um, script that I've had before joined the company when it's very small and uh, and build it up and so it's really important that you have people that you enjoy working with and and you can um, you know accurately work together to to build a much stronger organization 
And what is the uh, help us understand the opportunity? Tell tell us, you know, what is the competitive advantage you expect NerveGen to have? Well, the the key um, in life sciences companies is: do you have the right technology that that can be um, used in multiple uh, indications that might be interesting for um, large pharma to take on and 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 develop? And so. Our technology uh, is lucky. You know, we're not a niche technology. We're not a single shot on goal, to use a, a good old Canadian uh, hockey analogy. We've got multiple shots. It, it can be used in a number of different areas, and it's it's. I think it's key that you want to have um, a lot of opportunities because you, you can pick up the paper almost every day and read about another drug that's had some issue in in clinical trials and this, that, and the other thing. So to have the chance that you have multiple ways to approach it, I think, is really important because you want to. Um, you know, you can't be all things to all people, but you want to make sure that if if you go one direction, um, you can quickly pivot and, and move again. You know, that actually, I learned that one from um, a company I had a couple of years ago, and it was, it was interesting. The interesting part of this was, so we had a drug, it was in the clinic for an HIV, actually, and there was a um, adverse reaction. We had to stop the trial. So I remember I was, we were at a board retreat on an island at, at, at the uh, chairman's uh, cottage. And I had to try to do on this from this island, trying to get a cell signal to get it, to call our head of IR to get a press release out before a long weekend that we're stopping this clinical trial. And it was like, you know, it's just the worst thing you want to do. Of course, the stock price tanked, but a couple of things. One, we had money in the bank. And the second thing was we had a very smart chief medical officer who said, hey, you know, there is a side effect of that drug that looks really interesting and you should explore that. And, and, and so we did. And it turns out that the drug was really good at... Um, releasing stem cells into the bone from the bone marrow into the circulating blood, which is important when you're doing a, a stem cell transplant, which is a cancer treatment. And so we developed a drug for that. And ultimately, you know, we, the company was hugely successful. We sold the company for $600 million to, to Genzyme, and it was all, all in the back of a failed trial. And then a couple of years ago, my daughter was in a wedding um, and the sister of the bride was, you know, she was wearing a headscarf and she, she, um, uh, you know, I knew she had some sort of blood cancer, but didn't really know. And I was talking to her at the reception afterwards, and she told me that she had had a um, a uh, stem cell transplant, and she had actually taken our drug to have a successful stem cell transplant. This is a 28-year-old woman having this. And I tell you, I get chills down my spine right now just telling the story. I mean, if you want to talk about something that will motivate you to get out of your chair and get back in the office and get working is be part of something that saves someone's life, especially someone at that age. It was just it was just an amazing uh, experience. And it was, it all came out of, you know, I think, you know, again, smart people recognizing something that was interesting in a, um, in a uh, drug candidate and, and having the resources and the knowledge to, to move it forward. And now that drug is being sold and saving lives. I think it would be interesting to learn uh, someone like yourself who has had this role, uh, you know, perhaps a half dozen times, what, how the role maybe is different or changed or, how do you, whether there's a certain metric or measurement that you're paying much closer attention to, and I, I realize these are all different opportunities with each company. At the same time, we have a, a way of looking at the world that, well, it's still the same sort of process uh, in terms of growing and scaling and um, exiting. But what would you, you know, this role at NerveGen, what chapter will this be? for Bill Adams. This, what's going to be different about this? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think um, the, the key aspect in, uh, at NerveGen is going to be how do we um, successfully 
bring this forward for a number of different solutions. So it's always been the other companies are out there. We always had, we had one thing that was really good. Maybe two things that were really good. I can see NerveGen has got multiple shots to do that. The challenge is going to be though, you know, you've got different audiences for each piece. So, so I'm looking forward to, you know, there'll be certain companies that are going to be interested in, in Alzheimer's disease and they, that will be their focus. And that'll be a drug that'll be taken uh, chronically. And, and so, you know, your pricing and your, your strategy of that is something that will be quite different than say a company that's interested in, in spinal cord injury, which is an acute disease. And, and you take it a couple of times and then it's gone. So, the, so your whole licensing and, and, and marketing strategy is going to be completely different there. So it's got, you know, so many different applications and so many different diseases it's going to be different and, and some will be you know high price orphan possibly others will be you know day-to-day -day, um, uh, technology and how you marry all those different things together with essentially the same technology is going to be very interesting and i'm quite looking forward to, to thinking through those challenges and, and and making that happen is the challenge as simple as this you could be spreading yourself too thin how do you serve all those audiences how do you get the mind share with all of those audiences when there's only so much uh, marketing or relationship building that, uh, you know, a company this size can manage. Is that the obvious question or, or no? That is, that is the obvious question for sure. And, and you need to look at that. And, and one of the ways that we're um, looking at this is there's, you know, in all of these different diseases that I was talking about, there are, um, various societies that are focused on that, you know, whether it's the Alzheimer's society or the MS society, things like that. And within those groups, they've got um, specialists, they've got people that are focused on, on, on really their own disease um, and moving it forward, both in terms of financing it and in terms of, of, of development. And so we're really trying to tap into those organizations to work with them. So using their expertise as well, because it is, as you said, it's very difficult to be all things to all people and to be an expert in all things. So you have to really know how do you build your network to get the right people? So get your right advisory boards in place, get the right um, partners in place that you're working with on these trials. And in some cases we are partnering with them on trials to, um, to, to move it along so that we don't have to know absolutely everything about every single indication. So this is a, an early stage company, but can you give us maybe a, an abbreviated history of its capital structure? Yeah, so, so NerveGen, th this, this was actually a, a, a different experience for me as well. So NerveGen is essentially, uh, it's a public company listed in Canada on the TSX Venture Exchange. So it's a relatively junior exchange in Canada. And we are pretty much 100% retail held. So um, a lot of, um, you know, sophisticated life sciences investors, a few family offices, uh, then just a lot of sort of general retail holders. Uh, my experience is more in um, having institutional investors, you know, starting off with a venture capital round, uh, getting some core investors. Those are the guys that lead your IPO and, 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 and take you forward. And so we are right now in the position uh, of trying to re-characterize or reposition our, our shareholder base and try to bring in more institutional investors. The challenge you need, uh, you got to, again, you got to have the right bait to go fishing. Um, so you want to have the right um, uh, level of development of the technology, the right um, management team in place to attract uh, institutional investors. And we think we have that now we're, we're moving towards the clinic at the end of this year. So I think, you know, right now we're in the position where we really want our starting our investor uh, reach out to institutional investors, knowing that, um, you know, this, 
business is one that consumes a lot of cash, uh, especially when you get into later stage trials. So you want to have the right investors in place that are willing to to come along for the ride with you uh, for the long haul. Retail investors are great, uh, but you know they're not able to write a 10 or $20 million check if, if that's what you need uh, to start a phase two or a phase three trial. So with everything you've shared so far, we always ask for top of mind metrics. I know you're going to say, I'm always watching cash. I am looking <laughs> yeah. at our cash. Uh, but is there, you know, uh, is there something else you're, you're keeping a, a close eye on and, and I don't, you know, share something about, you know, how you, you monitor cash or, or what have you, but yeah, tell us what would be those top of mind metrics? Let me just ask the question. Well, certainly um, at this point, you know, it all it all does come back to cash, but some of the drivers of cash for us uh, are, um, you know, the timing of the different trials and how they come in. And a lot of those are based on the data that you're getting on a regular basis. So I am very involved in meeting with the science people on a regular basis to say, you know, what's the progress of this study? What's the progress of that study? Because often, you know, the results of one study will drive the size and diversity of the next study. And so keeping track of that, because I, you know, we've run a lot of different scenarios and certainly flexibility in planning has, has got to be key. We want to know like, you know, where is my next fork in the road? Where is that fork going to take us? What does that do to our cash runway? So um, definitely keeping uh, very involved in the business of the company and the progress of the company. You know, and it, it's, it's, it's odd because, you know, a lot of times you sit in these science meetings and this, and, your scientists and they're going like, you know, what is the CFO doing sitting here in this science meeting? You know, we're talking about science, and you know, and honestly, half the time I barely understand what they're talking about because of the the lingo that scientists are using. But, but you know, I just mean, I just need to understand what you guys are doing, and I want to understand sort of where the risk areas are and where the directions are, and it just makes my job that much easier if I have a good good sense of the science and and where the science is moving. So I have to believe that uh, the pandemic, like every uh, finance leader, a company this size, I, I would think, you know, this didn't impact your your overall business plan all that much. Or correct me, am I wrong about that? Uh, no, we, I mean, we were already a virtual company working from home, everybody, so we didn't have to shut down an office. But, um, you know, more importantly, the where our studies were being done, um, that was something that we wanted to uh, keep a close watch on. And we did have a couple of instances, particularly in, in the UK, where um, scientists were shut out of their labs because the universities just shut right down and, and so we couldn't get access to the studies. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, that that's back now and we're good. And then also, you know, in terms of uh, getting ready for the clinic, you know, some companies were having issues with having to shut down trials because of, um, of, you know, people not being able to go into hospitals or not being able to go to clinics. Uh, you know, we didn't have to deal with that. So uh, it didn't actually slow us down all that much uh, on uh, on what we were doing. And, uh, you know, we're still sticking with our same uh, guidance and same direction in terms of, of when it'll be done. I guess the other aspect, our, our drug manufacturing company also, was they were in California. And as you remember, California had a complete lockdown for about six weeks or so. Um, but, you know, timing wise, we were able to, to recover from that because they were certainly had nothing. They couldn't do anything for about six weeks. Nobody was allowed in the building. So when you say your drug manufacturing company, is that a component of your uh, treatments or offerings or how does that what are you referring to it? As well, that we, for? so the the drug product that we're using uh, in our clinical trials needs to be manufactured to uh, what's called good manufacturing practices. So there's various uh, regulations in terms of. 
purity of what it is that you're you're manufacturing. So even when you're in early stage, the drug isn't approved yet, you still need to have it manufactured under very high standards because you're putting it into people and, and you have to have tight controls. It's it's small batches. It's not like you would have uh, when you're commercial, but uh, it still needs to be done under the same strict uh, manufacturing guidelines. Bill, we are up to our uh, finance strategic moment question, and this is where I get to ask you for one moment of insight that you experienced during the course of your career. May have been uh, in the last 12 months, might have been 12 years ago, Uh, but your lines of sight into the organization as a finance leader allowed you to see something, a dynamic. Maybe it was a business development uh, risk. Maybe it was something else. Uh, but you responded to it, or the organization did, after your moment of insight. What comes to mind for you? Oh, for me, it was a, it was an interesting sort of combination of, of a lot of previous experiences that I had where I was at a, a joint company that um, was definitely struggling and had been struggling for a while in terms of um, just having enough cash to just get by. So it was always like, you know, every month, you know, you got just enough money to get by, just enough money to get by. And, and um, it was recently after I joined the company and, and our, our, our sales team uh, was working with a group um, in China to license some tech, license some of our technology. And I think because they've been beaten down so hard for so long in terms of watching the money, they were just strictly looking at a cost recovery on, on this um, project that we were working with these guys. And I was just sort of sitting in the background listening. It wasn't even really part of the main conversation. I listened to that. I said, you know, wait a second. You know, we spent 20 years and $100 million of shareholder money developing this technology. We're not going to just help somebody for a, um, uh, a cost recovery on what our, our actual costs were. I'm not going to even give you the cost recovery numbers because it doesn't matter. We need to be charging, you know, multiple millions uh you know, multiples on what you guys are proposing um, to to um, get value for what we've developed over the years. And and the CEO sort of looked over to me and said, OK, well, you know, sort of, OK, you know, Adams, if you're so smart, you know, you go negotiate this contract and you go see if you can get this money out of these guys. Well, <laughs> OK, sure. So I went and uh, we did. And it transformed the company in terms of 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 how we looked at the value of our technology, how we we're selling our services beyond just, you know, selling our product and, and getting our money back, uh, moving along. And I think it helped to sort of change the the mindset of of uh, the organization in terms of of different people getting, thinking a little more entrepreneurially about how, how we get value out of our technology. And it was um, it was kind of one of those things where you know you after you said it, you know, you sort of sit back and go, oh no, what did I get myself into? But it but it, but it actually turned out to be uh, you know an extremely positive experience and, you know, good for the company and, and good for, good for me and, and my growth as well. When you went into that deal of making, what was there something you did differently? Was there, you went in to, you know, I imagine a conference room, you went in and you, you just set the tone differently or something? why were you successful while others thought you would fail? Um, I think it was, it was the conviction uh, that I brought in, in terms of the value of our technology. It was a really interesting negotiation. I mean, I'd done a lot of work in, talking to European pharmaceutical companies, Japanese pharmaceutical companies. This was a, a company in China and the, the business culture in China is significantly different than, than, you know, what you're used to. And going over there, you know, we, we start off, you, you sit in a big room and there's all these big chairs. And I was, the, I was the big kahuna because I was the CFO uh, for this thing. And I'm sitting there and it's, it's very uncomfortable because I'm going like, I'm not used to this. You know, I'm, I'm used to sitting down and getting negotiating and away we go. And, 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 and very much um, their first part was, you know, a lot of ceremony and, and, you know, 
drinking tea and, and doing things and having big fancy meals. And a lot of negotiations are done, you know, over meals versus actually in the room. It was all done through a translator, which was another whole um, situation where you don't know exactly what somebody's saying. So everything about it was different. And, and it was, it was, it was frustrating. It was challenging. It was different time zones, but it was, it was really good learning experience as well. And I mean, I think I would encourage anybody, if you have a chance to, to, to do a deal like that, um, take advantage of it. You know, it, it's hard, you know, and you're, you know, we're on the phone at 2 AM Vancouver time, but it's the middle of the day, their time and going through negotiations in a different language uh, with a translator. Uh, but it was exciting and, 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 uh, you know, a good, good experience. When we return, CFO Bill Adams enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, we're back with Bill Adams, and we're entering the mentoring round. Bill, we're going to ask you to look back once again for us, and this time we're going to ask you to think back to that, well, to that first CFO experience, really. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice that first time you had the CFO responsibilities, what would it have been? What would have you told yourself? Definitely would have been learn as much as you can about the business as quickly as possible. Because it's so easy when you're starting off to just focus on the numbers. I, you know, I want to make sure that the financial statements are out. I want to make sure the MD&A is written properly, the quarterly report, all of the regulation stuff. That's all really important, but that's not what's going to drive forward your, your role in the company and, and your career. So you need to really understand the business get in and in, in this case i was dealing with the engineers talking to to um you know the scientists depending on your company and really understand what it is that you're selling because you know the best and most rewarding part of your job is is going to be dealing with customers dealing with um other members of the organization uh to to work together to have joint success we always like to ask a question that uh has you reflect a little bit on the personal side whether there's a habit or part of your daily routine uh, that you believe over time has paid you certain dividends on the professional side and, you know, in life at large. Um, anything you do personally, something something that's uh, part of your routine or whether it's just uh, uh, a practice that you have. Yeah, I thought about this question and, and the, you know, the typical CFO, I think, is, you know, you're, you're a type A personality, you're work all the time. Everybody expects you just to have your head down in your office. You're working with lawyers and accountants and investment bankers, and they're all exactly the same. Everybody's clocking 80 to hundred hours a week. Uh, and you know, that, that is, I think is in your nature and in your DNA. And so what you need to do is also focus on, I think your, your family and your personal life. And, and one thing I tried to do was make sure that I was there for my events for my kids, even if it was just leaving for an hour to go and do it and come back. Cause you don't want to sit back and have any regrets 
when you get older that you missed out on certain things and having the support of your family to do this job it's not easy and like i said you know you're on 2 a.m phone calls in china with a translator and and you can't do that if you don't have the support of the rest of your your life um to, to help you and, and let you let you do that so make time for those important family things schedule it in you know the work is always going to be there you can always find work to do that's that's a certainty in this industry uh in this role but but make sure you make time for those other things and and i think um it'll help you be better because you're sort of less stressed, more relaxed and more able to focus when you're at work. Nice, nicely put. I do want to just ask one additional question it's regarding your, your early years there uh, after you stepped into that CFO role. And again, that was a technology company, as you explained, a hardware software company, but then you, you go off into biotech and how did those two chapters uh, sort of link up? How did you segue into the world of biotech originally? And again, uh, you, you, you do and you arrive at a senior you know, finance leadership level, I believe. So how, how, how did you do that exactly? Well, it was back to the networking. Uh, it, was, it was people who were involved in, in some of the um, companies that I was, or the companies I was involved with and some of the clients that I was involved with at KPMG that were starting up, uh, you know, really into this, this very um, early stage life sciences uh, industry that was happening in Vancouver at the time. Uh, and I, I uh, was contacted and said, yeah, you know, scientists, engineers, I, you know, I can deal with other people, <laughs> the way they look at the world, not, not too different. I think it makes sense. Uh, and it was a chance to take a company public, which I hadn't done. I joined a public company, but I hadn't actually done an IPO before. So I left at the chance to, uh, to be able to do that. So it was, um, it was just, it was just really good timing, uh, to do that. I had a second opportunity, uh, in Canada, um, in the cannabis space, it was, I joined a cannabis testing lab and it was the same thing again with my network, you know, Hey, you know, you can, you can help this company. And, and we, um, you know, out of that and back in the life sciences now, but it was, also a super interesting time and opportune time in a very early stage industry that was just getting started and having the right contacts to, to get involved, uh, at the right time and, and, you know, jump onto that rocket ship and hang on and, and, and grow the business along with a very growing industry at the same time. It was, it keeps it very interesting. So you mentioned your network. I just want to see if I can draw a straight line. When you originally were part of KPMG, did you have early biotech companies as clients? Uh, no, it was it was all the uh, it was on the technology side. So biotech in Vancouver back then didn't really exist. It was just getting started. I, I'd love to know something about that. Biotech in Vancouver, what got traction up there? Was there just a, a you know a raw group of companies that were the pioneers? And after a while, there was enough talent uh, to really keep it uh, an engine going. Uh, you know, how would you describe it? Yeah, I think the I mean, Vancouver's got a number of universities, um, and there was a lot of interesting science that was happening. There was a lot of entrepreneurs, but um, the money was lacking. So Canadians, by their nature, are conservative and certainly were very conservative back then in terms of making those investments. And so there wasn't a, a money that was being set aside. Then, you know, the government sort of woke up and a couple of um, major uh, sort of, you know, early stage seed uh, venture funds were started up and started making placements. And, and that's what got us started. The company that I joined was 
uh, it was technology out of the U.S. and the U.K. So it was it was uh, the spinoff of a um, technology group, a, a science group out of um, a company called Johnson Matthey, which is a U.K. precious metals company. The group was based in Pennsylvania, and they were looking at developing uh, pharmaceutical applications for metals. Uh, and, and platinum is is used a lot in cancer, so that was the main focus. They couldn't really find money within um, the states, but they found an investor group out of Vancouver that would put up $40 million to have them move to Vancouver. That was one of the conditions was move to Vancouver. So they came uh, and were one of sort of the core companies um, growing that infrastructure. But that same group of investors that invested in, in Anermed was investing in a lot of other companies in Vancouver at the same time. And we had a number of successes within Vancouver, companies growing up, um, were successfully sold uh, and moved on. Um, and, and so that attracts, obviously, when people are making good returns, that attracts more money and, and really the, the ecosystem grew. It did go sort of a bit of, had a bit of a dip when a lot of the larger companies were either bought or, or shut down. Uh, and then it's going through a bit of a renaissance again now. I think uh, it's, it's quite a bit uh, building up again here. Again, based on this strong industry um, or sort of university infrastructure, but also we have people here now that have moved here. I mean, I happen to be from here, but people that have moved here and have set up shop. And once you live in Vancouver, you never want to live anywhere else. And um, and and you know are wanting to get involved in companies and 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 grow more businesses. Wow, some nice detail there. Thank you, Bill. That's a great great answer. I think a lot of people will find that interesting. Um, okay, so this is where we ask for a book uh, selection. Do you have one for us? Doesn't have to be a business book, but we'll leave that to you. What would you share? Yeah, certainly one of the most interesting books that I, I read and I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm inherently cynical about business books and in general, things like this. It's just, it's in my nature, but um, I read a book, a very smart CEO suggested I read it and it was very good. It's called five dysfunctions of the team by Patrick Lencioni. And, and, and what it really addresses is not uh, it's not a finance book at all, but it's all about working within teams. And, and I think to be an effective uh, CFO, you have to be able to work, you know, cross-functionally with the leaders of a lot of different uh, departments, uh, different geographies. And and this really talks about, you know, skills and in, in working together as a team, not just within your own team, but across the, the management team uh, together. So um, I, I believe through it periodically. I think it's a very interesting uh, reminder book um, to uh, to read. And it's, it's a short, easy read. It's not it's not a big, dense, voluminous uh, uh, book to read. So if you got, you know, go on holidays or, you know, sit by a sit by the fireplace on the weekend you can get through it easily well great great choice have to say finance leaders uh point that book out for a reason i think they uh, ha actually believe it it teaches them something uh that maybe their finance education <laughs> might have lacked <laughs> yeah. uh but it's there's something to that book it is very popular among finance leaders and of course we know they uh, working cross-functionally is never easy so this is uh what uh, you know a big part of their role today so as you uh underscored for us nicely we're up to our final question where uh, we get to have you look forward for us and uh, we're looking for what are your priorities as a cfo over the next 12 months what would those be well so for our company you know i said we're, we're um, fairly new and just getting started we are um obviously very interested in in uh moving up to a senior listing on u.s exchange so the trick i've got now is is Get the company ready to 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 be a Nasdaq listed company, and how you do that, how you get the various uh, controls in place, how do we meet all the various SOX requirements that will ultimately come, and 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 get all these processes in place, 
in a way without stifling the creativity and, and, and entrepreneurial spirit of the people in the company. Because it's one thing as a finance guy say, oh, you have to do this and you have to do that. And we got to have this box ticked and whatever. And it ends up, people just get frustrated and they say, I don't want to do this anymore. So, so that'll be the, um, that'll be the balance. I've done it before. Uh, and, and looking forward to doing it again is, is, is getting the company uh, ready to be there uh, while we keep this very unique and exciting uh, culture within the organization uh, moving ahead. Bill Adams, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.